We read the word of God this evening in the third epistle of John. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, But Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. That doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Thus far we read the word of God. I call your attention to verses 3 and 4 of the epistle. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. Even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, what role does truth play in your life? Is truth just a thing that you have in your head? It's something that you once learned. It's something that you could recite or tell back to somebody if they asked you what is truth. It's something though that is entirely a matter of your head and of your thoughts and does not form Your life does not shape the way you live? Or is that which was put in our head by learning and memorization and instruction something which the Holy Spirit, using those means, has worked in our heart? Does truth form and regulate your earthly life? That's not only the pertinent question for us tonight and the occasion of confession of faith, 
But it is, in fact, a question that gets at the very heart of what the entire third epistle of John is about. John speaks in this epistle of three men. Three men in the church. There is Gaius, to whom the epistle is written. There is Diotrephes, about which not much good is said. And then there is Demetrius, possibly the one who's bringing the epistle to Gaius. And although the church in whatever land it was must have consisted of a number of people and the congregation here of many souls, the apostle isolates three men in the church. This I find to be the theme of the epistle. Three men in the church in relation to truth. How does truth form the life of these three different men? And in them we find examples to follow and warnings not to follow. There is, first of all, Gaius. Of Gaius we know rather little, but John loved him dearly. Four times he calls him beloved. And apparently Gaius' understanding of truth was in part the result of John's instruction For John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And he has Gaius, among others, in mind. Gaius both walked in truth, the focus of our text, and was a fellow helper to truth, about which I'll say just briefly a couple of things in the sermon. On the other hand, Diotrephes hated truth. Diotrephes of these three men was the more prominent of the leaders in the church. He controlled the church. He was casting out of the church those who would not do what he wanted. He seemed then to have as much earthly outward power as the elders of the congregation. Maybe he had been put in that office, we are not told. But he hated truth. He loved to have the preeminence, said John. He received us not, he doesn't look kindly, on an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who is going around to the different churches or writing to them. And, whereas Gaius was a fellow helper to the truth, in that he cared for the missionaries, Diotrephes would not receive the brethren, would not care for the missionaries, forbade them that would and cast them out of the church. Things were not well in this church. And there are men in the church of Jesus Christ on earth like that too. Truth, they have it in their head. But their whole life, even in the church, is about opposing because only in that way can they control the people. And then in the third place, there is... Demetrius, he hath a good report of the truth itself. Two godly men for whom truth was more than something in their head. It formed their life. And one man who, though he was in the church, hated truth. The application of the epistle to every congregation in the New Testament then is really very simple. Our mere presence in the church doesn't say all by itself that we love truth and walk in it. 
let it be evident from our walk and life that we love truth. I call your attention this evening then to the verses 3 and 4 in which Gaius is set forth as an example of one who loved and walked in truth. Gaius, walking in truth, that's the theme. In the first place we'll notice Gaius' godly walk. In the second place, the brethren's testimony about him. And in the third place, John's great joy. Well, the concept truth comes up at least five times in the epistle, not only with reference to the various men, but sometimes twice in a verse or in a short period. So the concept truth is foundational to the entire epistle, and that means that we have to ask the question, what is truth? As I developed a series on the epistle, I saw that the concept keeps getting more weight added to it as the epistle goes on. So what I'm going to say tonight is only said in view of the verses that we have as our text. In the first place, then, we must see that truth is something objective. Truth is that which God reveals. Truth is the revelation of God. When I say it's objective, then I mean that we can look at it. We can go together to find it. We can go study it somewhere. Truth is not what you think or what I think. Truth is what God said. And that's a relevant point in our day and age in which many say, well, that's your opinion, this is my opinion. There might be a very fundamental doctrine of Scripture and somehow we're just to agree to disagree. Well, there are, of course, teachings of Scripture in which we can have different opinions at Bible study and as we live one with another, but they don't regard truth. They don't regard foundational realities that God has revealed necessary for salvation, that truth is unchanging. And now it's on that point that we can expect to be tested. When we get to the day in which Antichrist comes into power more, he will have us deny if we're going to keep living in the body, that truth is the unchanging, objective revelation of God. So we start there. That's a non-negotiable. Now in the second place, if you say, all right, so scriptures are truth. What is at the very heart of the scripture? If you want to say this in a nutshell is truth, what is it? Then the answer is twofold. Number one, the revelation of Jehovah God as the one, only, true, all-glorious God who is to be worshipped, feared, and obeyed. And the sending of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, into our flesh. God in the flesh. Why? Because humans fell into sin. Because humans need to be redeemed from sins, guilt, and corruption, and power. Because only God, come in the flesh, can take on the corruption of sin and endure it and satisfy the wrath of God for it. Now I want you to see 
that this doctrine of Jesus Christ in the flesh is really at the very heart of what the apostle means by truth. That doesn't come out right away in 3 John. But read 3 John in light of 1 John and 2 John. In light of 1 John 1, in which the apostle says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Jesus Christ, whom we saw and heard and touched, he was truly man. And then in 2 John, verse 7, where the apostle says, Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Today, the denial of the true doctrine of Jesus Christ that's more prominent is the denial that Jesus Christ is God. May have been a Jesus Christ once. Sure, he was a historical person, but he was just a man. In the day in which John wrote, there wasn't a denial that he was God. That part of truth was understood, but that he was genuinely human, especially the Gnostics of John's day were denying that. And so what I set forth here in going to Jesus Christ as the Son of God in the flesh and showing that that's necessary for our salvation is not just saying, well, we learn somewhere that that's really a fundamental truth, but it's saying that that's what the apostle has in mind. Now with that, seeing that truth is the revelation of God, unchanging, that has especially a word about God in Christ We heard the question asked earlier this evening and an answer given. Do you acknowledge the doctrine contained in the Old and New Testaments and in the articles of the Christian faith and taught here in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Is that which is set forth in Scripture enough? We're getting at Gaius walking in truth. But what we're seeing so far is that his walking in truth views truth as the standard for life. The third thing to say about truth as it's set forth in our text is that truth is antithetical. There's something that opposes it. And I referred already to the lie, the error of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was really a a, a philosophy that tried to integrate some Christian ideas with paganism. So what was happening there is not only that truth is being denied, but it was being denied in a very sneaky and dangerous form of saying, well, what you say is truth might be truth, but this also can be called truth. Look, it's like the Christian faith. You and I were saying things that maybe we're just coming at it from a different angle, but we have an idea of what it takes to be saved. You have to know something, say the Gnostics. What I'm doing, beloved, is showing you 
that this unchanging revelation of God that has a very distinctive confession about Jehovah and Jesus Christ as its heart is a sort of thing that the world will come along or the anti-Christian kingdom will come along and say, all right, we're Christian too. We see it a little differently than you, but... And then that anti-Christian preacher will use all kinds of biblical language. And he'll say things about Jesus. And you might say to yourself, well, maybe there's something to it after all. Maybe Christianity is far broader than I've been understanding it. Maybe there are different ways to look at and think about Jesus Christ. But no, truth is antithetical, meaning if you deny that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, you are not teaching, believing, or conveying truth in the least. We're to walk in the truth. Elsewhere, the apostle says, walk in the light. We're therefore not to walk in the lie. Elsewhere, the apostle says, stay away from darkness. And the contrasts make my point. You don't have light and darkness together. You don't have truth and lie together. And as soon as truth is compromised, you no longer really have it. It is our calling to walk in truth. It's significant, therefore, that those who make confession of faith are asked, have you resolved by the grace of God to adhere to this doctrine to reject all heresies repugnant thereto. Now the fourth thing to say about truth is that it was a sphere in which Gaius walked and is a sphere in which you and I are to walk. When I say sphere, I mean that you have the whole world, the whole creation in which are many billions of humans, but that the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of depravity, the darkness of ungodliness pervades this world. And here and there in the Old Testament was in Israel, but now it's throughout the whole world, throughout the globe. But here and there, God shines truth from heaven in the darkness of this world. And just as a flashlight puts a beam in a dark room, puts a beam on a certain spot of the floor. So this revelation of God enlightens a certain part of the world, of the universe, where the church is found. And you and I are called to be in that light and live in the sphere of that light. That is walking in truth. It involves, as we heard this evening, living a new and godly Life. I've set forth truth, the concept truth in this text, but let's get to the walking. That's, that activity is on the foreground. Gaius is walking in this truth. What does that mean? It means in the first place that all of his actions and his words and his thoughts were sanctified by the Spirit that he was living with Scripture as his guide. Now he was a mere man. He was a sinner too. He had an old man like all of us do. And so as I set forth how he was walking in truth. I don't mean to minimize that. I don't mean to suggest 
that at no time did he have sin against which he struggled. And yet he was a godly man. That's the focus of the text. Walking in truth, he let Scripture guide him very consciously. Do you? We wake up in the morning and we decide what we're going to do, or maybe we don't decide what we're going to do. Maybe we simply start being active and and see how the day unfolds. And if our resolve is not from the moment we awake to serve God and to live in the light of Scripture, then we'll find ourselves walking not where that light of truth is shining in darkness, but we'll find ourselves creeping over towards the edges, the dusky, murky edges, and maybe even going into the realm of darkness and committing sins of ungodliness and lying and stealing and cheating and being unfaithful to our spouse and saying, what does it matter? This is how everyone else is living. But if we're walking in truth, We will let the word of God guide and govern how we live. That's first about Gaius walking in truth. And the second place though, his walk in truth, outwardly conforming to the will and word and law of God, was a matter of the heart. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee even as thou walkest in the truth. This isn't just a matter of the head. It wasn't Gaius just saying, I've got to know how to pick my battles. I've got to know how to navigate through this life, and I'd I'd better outwardly make it look like I'm a good man. I, I want this John, this apostle John to like me. No, the truth was in him. Is the truth in you? Just in here in you? Or in here in you? And then we can add a thought to what truth is. Does truth himself, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, dwell within you and take up residence in your and my heart and soul? For Gaius, that was the case. In the third place, so was he walking in truth that in verse 2, John said, I wish above all that thou mayest prosper and be in health, earthly, bodily health, even as thy soul prospereth. Because Gaius was walking in truth, I shouldn't say because, Gaius' walk in truth was evidence that his soul prospered. Now the word prospered means that he made good progress in a journey. So let's use an example now of what it would be to prosper in the sense in which the word is used here. Tomorrow let's suppose that you have to drive to Denver and take care of some business. Maybe that's where the construction site is. And you wake up in the morning and the traffic isn't any worse than normal. So within the time you thought it would take you to get to Denver, you have arrived there. Your journey prospered. It went well. 
Gaius' soul prospered. Things were going as well with him spiritually as you could expect for a child of God who loved the word of God and lived in light of it. But suppose that you awake tomorrow and begin your trip to Denver, but before you are uh, too, too far out of Loveland, you have a flat tire, and it takes you an hour to deal with the flat tire, and a little farther down the road you get in an accident, and after three hours you're still not in Denver. Your journey is not going well. Things are not prospering. And that's the way the souls of some in the church of Jesus Christ are. That is, those of us who maybe have made confession of faith even, but are not living in light of the word of God, do not let the principles of scripture guide us. We're ready to do what our friend says. We're ready to do what our co-worker says. We're ready to do what we feel like, not what God requires of us, your soul is not prospering. The apostle said of Gaius, his soul is prospering. He walks in truth, and this means ultimately a prosperous soul, a happy soul, a soul that enjoys covenant friendship with God and finds in that deepest happiness. Is your soul prospering? Or do you see already tonight that there are significant adjustments you need to make to your walk in life? Each of us is to examine ourselves in light of that question. God knows the right answer. Let us not deceive ourselves. And when needed, correct our life by walking in truth. What explains how Gaius can, how you and I can. The answer is nothing else than the grace of God. I'm a sinner, dead in Adam. I don't reform my way of myself. No man can decide on his own that this word of God is the standard by which he will live. When a man sees that the word of God is the standard by which he must live, he gives evidence, not only that from eternity God chose him or her to be his child, but that the very purpose of Jesus Christ coming, God himself coming in the flesh, was not just the salvation of some other people somewhere else, but of him or her, of you, of me. That the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, for me, was effective and efficacious, for he died on my behalf in order to reconcile me with God. Only when God honored the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf as full and complete satisfaction for sin now, can Jesus Christ arise and renew our heart, our mind, and our understanding. That's grace. It's irresistible, transforming, renewing grace. Grace enabled Gaius to walk in truth. 
that grace enabled Gaius to love truth. When the apostle says again, the truth that is in thee, he means both that God has worked it in Gaius and that Gaius recognizes and loves that. If therefore you find that you need to be correcting your course of life, that you've been walking in darkness or at least not in the very center of where that beam of light shines most brightly, but off a little more in the murky outskirts of it, and turn to the Lord in prayer. Confess your sin, your need for His grace, and He will give you that. He gives it to His children. And now this is the word that comes to all of the young people of the church as well, and to the sister who made confession of faith tonight, it is in this truth that we must walk. The walking in this truth must characterize the rest of our life from now till death. Gaius was in a different place than John. How did John know about Gaius walking in truth? The answer, as we consider in our second point, is that brethren came to tell him. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. These brethren were traveling missionaries. Verse 7 indicates that. It refers to them as those who went forth for Christ's name's sake. And from that we understand that they were those who were sent by the church to preach the gospel to those who had not yet heard to preach among the Gentiles or the heathen. Now these brethren went forth from wherever John was and come back saying about Gaius, the man loves truth. And verses 5 through 8 will tell us that one very concrete evidence that he loved truth and way in which he showed it is he housed those missionaries and he fed them. It is one thing then for a church of Jesus Christ to say we love truth. We're strong in truth. We know truth. We put emphasis on doctrine. But not care about the work of missions which we are called to do. It's quite another thing. A far more glorious and beautiful thing. For that church of Jesus Christ which says we prize truth. We'll put an office bearer, a preacher, on trial if we think he's preached heresy. We prize truth that much. And we want others to hear this truth. Let that be the kind of congregation that we are and the denomination of which we are a part. Now, these brethren come back. And they speak to John. In so doing, they themselves indicate that they loved truth. 
where they recognized another man who loved truth, they were drawn to him and he to them. There was true communion and true fellowship among those who loved truth together. There's something else going on in this part of the text. People are talking to other people about yet other people. The brethren are talking to John about Gaius. It's the sort of thing that happens all the time. Maybe at dinner today, you were talking to your guests or your hosts or your family about a person not present. That's what was going on here. And the question is, what were you saying? In what spirit were you saying it? Presumably, you were talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Did the things you said about them convey that you appreciated them as brothers and sisters in Christ? The brethren come to John to talk about Gaius. The old man in each one of us might talk very readily about others in the same church that we are in. But the speech, the things we say, and the motives for saying it will not be so honorable. Maybe we'll tear down the brother or sister. Maybe we'll point out his or her weaknesses. Maybe instead of giving indication that we appreciate the gift of God's grace in that brother and that sister, the way in which the brother or sister is an encouragement to me in my godly walk, maybe instead we'll point out his or her weaknesses and thereby suggest the church would be okay if that person weren't a member. So there's a practical application going on here. The brethren come to John. and They speak about one not present. And they say, we saw a beautiful instance of the grace of God in that man. He walks in truth. Thereby, they themselves spoke truth and showed that they also were walking in truth. You might say, but if my brother or sister has this particular weakness, and if I talk to somebody else about it, that truth, It's not truth the way our text is speaking of truth. It certainly isn't the unchanging revelation of God regarding the place that person has in the body of Jesus Christ. It is your opinion. It is my assessment. Truth says one of another The Lord died for him or her also. The Lord has a place in the body for him or her. And that's why I want to get to know him or her more. 
Oh, we all have weaknesses. That's not the issue. We're all going to notice each other's weaknesses. That's not the question. Do we love? Do we speak highly of? So, this part of the text speaks of the grace of God magnified in the brethren and in their speech. Now, I have to take that to a deeper level. Person A, the brethren, spoke to person B, John, about person C, Gaius, not present. Person B, John, goes to person C, Gaius, and says, this is what person A said about you. You understand how that applies, don't you? To our talk one with another. So maybe at your dinner table a member of the church was spoken of in a less than favorable light. And what would happen now if you were to go to that one who was spoken of in less than a favorable light and say, well, this is what so-and-so said about you. You know what's happening? The unity of the church, the communion of of saints is being attacked and undermined. That is not walking in truth. What John says to Gaius, they heard about Gaius though, is a beautiful thing. It's an encouragement. I heard you're walking in truth. That becomes the application now to the congregation. The occasion not only of the confession of faith of one, but in the recognition that there are many in the congregation who have confessed their faith. Let us speak to one another, but also about one another in an upbuilding way. When I say encouraging, I don't just mean encouraging in an earthly sense. I mean let us help their soul to prosper. Appreciate the community of saints that God has worked here. Now, everyone who made confession of faith, of course, even those who haven't, because they too, by baptism, are members of the church, have to take this part of the text to heart. To walk in truth is going to be to speak truth one of another. And truth that we speak one of another is not my opinion, but is a praising of Jehovah for the place he gave them in the body of Christ. And that was the occasion for John's great joy. I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in the I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. In two ways, verse 4 is an amplification of verse 3. It's saying even more than verse 3. In the first place, in verse 3, it was Gaius. They said that you walk in truth. And John says then, all of my children walking in truth. That gives me joy. But furthermore... In verse 3, he says, I rejoiced greatly. 
And you might say, all right, so a parent rejoices to hear that his or her children walk in truth. They certainly do. But maybe there are many other joys that equal that joy. And the apostle says in verse 4, don't get that impression. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. We spent a while in the first point explaining what truth is. It won't take as long, but we have to stop a moment and say, what is Christian joy? What is this thing that the parent has nothing else in greater measure than? What is this thing that the church of Jesus Christ has tonight as we heard a sister confess her faith? What is this thing that the pastor has in his heart and soul, when he sees the youth of the congregation maturing and making confession of their faith, not just in head and with mouth, but walking in truth, what is this joy? True Christian joy is the heart activity of the child of God who delights in the fact that the Lord accomplishes his saving grace hearts and lives of all those whom he's chosen to salvation. True Christian joy is a delight that God accomplishes his work of salvation in each and every one whom he has chosen in Jesus Christ. Let me spell that out in three ways. In the first place, the greatest joy of the child of God is not a joy that regards my earthly circumstances. All is well. I'm healthy. I can pay my bills. The joy of which the apostle is speaking is a joy that many saints of God have manifested and confessed. Though things weren't so well with them on earth. It's a joy that the Lord is working his will. In the second place, true Christian joy is a delight in what God is doing in others. There's no envy. It doesn't need to be this envy either in this true Christian joy because what God is doing in others, he's doing in me too. The work of salvation. But right now the focus is on others. I am so glad, says the child of God who has this joy, that it's not just me that's saved. I don't think of my life that way. Oh, at least I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But I am so glad to be a part of a congregation, a fellowship of others who are saved. And I desire their growth. And in the third place, this is where it gets personal. True Christian joy does say, I even see that I, a pastor, a parent, a teacher, who is a weak means, was used of God in the life of that person. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, implied in the fact that these are his children is he invested time and energy, blood and sweat and tears and prayer.
prayers on their behalf. The parent doesn't deserve that his children should walk in truth. The pastor doesn't deserve that the words he preaches should bear fruit, positive fruit, in the lives of the members of the congregation. All of us recognize that when that happens, that's a token again of the grace of God. Therefore, rather than being silent about it, we give him praise and we express to others the greatest joy of our heart. That is what the apostle is doing here in the text. It's that joy that the church of Jesus Christ has too, a local congregation perhaps, that sends a missionary far away. And the missionary sends reports back of how the word is being well received. The people are growing. You might not know the people, but you say, what a joy. The Lord's work of salvation is being carried out. This young people is your parents' greatest joy. If you've never seen your parents cry, I know a way you could make them cry. I don't want you should do that, but I know a way. Tell them that everything they taught you is bunk. Tell them that the law of God which they trained you to keep doesn't really matter. You'll see your parents cry. I have no greater joy, says the believer, than to hear that my children, and if I don't have physical blood children or adoptive children, I have no greater joy than to hear that my brother, my sister, walks in truth. Now the question is, examine your life and see if in fact that's true. Has any joy replaced this as your greatest joy? Might it be perhaps, it does happen after all, that parents who have trained their children in the fear of the Lord find that at least some of their children do not love the Lord. And that's a grief. That is a parent's greatest grief. And might it be that if that's your grief, you have resolved that you're going to find something to replace this great joy which you don't have. Or at least don't have in as full measure as you'd like because some of your children walk in truth, but some do not. That's a danger to us, you see. Satan wants to convince us that this joy need not be the greatest and really in the end cannot be the greatest. And we fall for it. And so we look for earthly joys. We look for earthly things that might give us joy, food, and drink. 
We might say to ourselves, well, that person's always been my friend. I've had good times with that person. Now that that person says that they're not a Christian, I still want to be their friend. I want the earthly joys that that person and I shared together. Or a parent might say, not this, because we'll say this. A parent would say this to his child who goes astray, I still love you, and the proof will be, you will be in my prayers night and day. I will even pray that God will chastise you until you turn. But instead of that, the parent who looks somewhere else for a greatest joy will say to the son, all right, all right, son, all right, daughter. We'll forget about walking in truth. We'll forget about the law of God being that which must bind us together and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, that being the sphere in which we must walk. I'll still love you with an earthly love. We'll still be friends. And then what's happened is the parent is saying, I'm willing to substitute this greatest joy with some earthly relationship or a thing that in the end will not satisfy. Let us examine ourselves whether we are seeking some other joy to replace this greatest or whether we're ready to say I walk in truth all others who walk in truth. And when it becomes my own son or daughter who rejects truth, I say to him or her, love you? I do, with a love you don't understand. But walk with you, I cannot. Finally, beloved, there's another perspective yet to this greatest joy. It's not just the parents, it's not just the elders and the pastors. It's not the eye of the text, the inspired apostle. Therefore, what he says here, is that not the same as God himself saying to you and to me tonight, that he, the living God, who has begotten us again in Jesus Christ to be his people, has no greater joy than to hear that his children walk in truth. And now the point being emphasized is that when we do set aside his law and walk in unbelief or in darkness and in sin, God is grieved. Not grieve the way the Arminian might present him that oh he tried so hard and oh he wishes we would just make the choice to turn back to him. Not grieved in that woefully ineffectual way but he's grieved. Because you have no fellowship with God as you walk in darkness nor does he pretend to have fellowship with you or me if I should walk in darkness. But when we walk in truth, there is deepest happiness and communion.
You see it in the life of Jesus Christ? He who walked in truth his whole life and had a fellowship with Jehovah God which was never diminished in its joys. There were earthly sorrows. But with his heavenly father, he was always received in mercy and loved. So if truth lives in you, so that you and I walk in truth, God is saying, that is my greatest joy. To that end, I formed you again in Jesus Christ. To that end, I sent my only begotten Son into your flesh to renew you. What an incentive to walk in truth. God, give us grace. Yes, you too, our sister who made confession of faith tonight, give you grace to walk in it the rest of your life, but all of us. And then we shall enjoy joys, true joys, which earth cannot afford. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we pray that this evening the word we heard be food for our souls, itself a light upon our pathway, and then that we might seek and rejoice in thy saving work in the hearts of all thy people. And that might be the church's greatest joy. Hear us, Father of mercies, whose love and grace for us we stand amazed at because we are both unworthy and unable in ourselves to make thee love us. We're amazed for Christ's sake. Amen.